We, uh, we are honored to have with us this morning uh, as our guest preacher, the Reverend Dr. Emera Brannan. Uh, Dr. Brannan is a uh, retired elder in the Methodist Church. He is, in fact, uh, let me see if I get this right, the president of the Historical Society, right? He is the chair of the conference history... Commission on Archives Sorry. and History. Commission on Archives and History uh, and a bunch of similar other things. He is uh, also... <laughs> Somebody who, who has forgotten well, well way more put. than all of us will ever know uh, about this place. So I'm thrilled that uh, he's able to be here. Will you please welcome him? Thank you um, for, for, for having me here. And, uh, the, uh, and you know, when Jason told me that what he would like me to, to say a few words about... Uh, was the Goucher family, and uh, and which who played a very important role in the life of this congregation and church. Uh, so, in a way, what I'm going to do is talk about the people who lived in the big house, you know, behind here, uh, and uh, at Altadale, and uh, particularly to talk about uh, John Goucher and Mary Fisher Goucher. Because uh, it's really the Fisher family that had the connection uh, with this building and place and congregation and its life, uh, and uh, they adopted Dr. Goucher into their uh, midst, and uh, then he became uh, devoted to it. This this was where he wanted to be, his favorite place, and where he ended his earthly pilgrimage. Uh, the uh, I, I'd I'd like to uh, well well when I was invited to come here uh, I mentioned it uh, to a, a friend a mutual friend of Jason's and mine um, who said well you might be the only person there who isn't wearing a Ravens shirt <laughs> um, so in, in point of fact I'll confess to not owning. A raven shirt. My, my, my son does, but but this is what I wear to church on Raven Sundays. Uh, uh, which, uh, and so that I always arrive looking like that. Uh, but and and my wife has a big red Texas looking, uh, not a purple Texas looking uh, uh, hat that she wears on those Sundays. We, uh, so I want you to know that at Lovely Lane Church in the city, Dr. Goucher's other home, uh, I, uh, we, we, we are not insensitive to the fact of <laughs> what's happening at 1 o'clock today. The, um, and I, I, I have some material here that I had uh, prepared about the Goucher family some time ago, and I don't, I'm not intending to to uh, tell you everything that's there, although you might think so. And, uh, but uh, there, there's a, a quote that I want that's in here that I don't trust myself to remember precisely. Uh, the older of, these, of this phenomenal couple is John Franklin Goucher. Uh, he was born in 1845 
in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, sort of toward Pittsburgh, but, and he spent most of his childhood years in Pittsburgh. His father was a medical doctor and uh, had a very successful practice in the area, but he moved to uh, Pittsburgh because uh, the opportunities for his family were better in the bigger city, but also could have a bigger practice in, in the bigger city. And uh, uh, he did well there. So I, I, as the story develops, I don't want anybody to feel that Dr. Goucher grew up in an impoverished family. Um, uh, he, he grew up in a, in a good, strong setting. But his health was not good, and he spent a lot of time at home. Uh, because of being unable to attend uh, public school. Uh, and his mother uh, did what today we would call homeschooling. And, uh, and in, for all of his life, he attributed much of his character to the influence of his mother uh, upon his life. And he often said that he was always impressed by her perfect life in Jesus Christ, that she was the source of his life, uh, his work. And uh, I want to share with you as we begin some words from Scripture uh, that are found in Paul's letter to the Romans in the 12th chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt in every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. 
So the first 13 verses of the 12th chapter of Romans. And in many ways, I feel that they characterize uh, the life of John Goucher and of Mary Fisher Goucher. John's life, uh, after he completed school, he went to a Dickinson uh, College, which at that time was an all-male institution, and um, um, he he studied there. But while he was there, he also began uh, Sunday school work among uh, underprivileged children uh, in the city where that great school was located. Uh, the church that he the Sunday school grew into a church, and the church is still functioning. Uh, today in that place. Um, He had made an early commitment to Christ. Uh, When he was in his teens, uh, he went to a revival that the Methodist Episcopal Church was having in town. And uh, he went with his parents and with his beau, uh, with his girlfriend. And, uh, And they were all seated together. And I've always thought this story is so typical of the gentlemanly demeanor that he always displayed. Uh, the first night that an invitation was given to come forward, he did not respond. And he obviously went home and thought all day long. On the second night, he turned to, uh, I guess you'd say his date, and uh, nodded to her and said, pardon me, miss, I'm going to the altar. And, uh, and he came forward and made a commitment to Christ. And later, uh, he said almost instantaneously, he also felt a commitment to service in, in ministry in the church. And that he, what he said, uh, he said he remembered his prayer that night, which was, uh, if you will grant me the assurance of your pardon of my sins, I will try to do anything you ask of me, Lord. And uh, his life was in many ways the fulfillment of that commitment that he made. When he left college, he went on with his determination to enter the ministry. His father was not a happy camper about this decision. He wanted him to be a doctor. And um, he, uh, I mean, his father was a great man of faith also, but, but he uh, was not pleased uh, with the idea that he would give his life to the itinerant ministry of the Methodist Episcopal Church, where he would always be moving about and have no certain home. And uh, he, uh, he offered to, to send him to medical school even, if he would enter medical practice with him. Then he offered even to send him to Europe for training in surgery, where, where the great surgeons of the day were located, uh, in Vienna and uh, elsewhere. And, and none of this would persuade, dissuade him from entering the ministry. So finally, in exasperation, his father said, I will pay for your harness and horse and buggy so that you can go to conference uh, and travel 
around a circuit successfully. So uh, he gave in and was very supportive uh, as his ministry developed. Uh, when he came to his first appointment in the Baltimore Conference, which included uh, large portions of, of uh, Pennsylvania and the area where Dickinson is located uh, at the time, he was appointed to what was called the Baltimore Circuit. And the Baltimore Circuit was a series of maybe eight churches, which included this church. And uh, the minister, they would assign maybe two ministers to it who would rotate around among the churches. He, was, he took lodging. Uh, you know, not, they didn't have a residence for the junior preacher on the circuit. He took lodgings in a house with a family named Turner, uh, uh, somewhat to the south of us today. It, uh, and one evening, a, a certain Miss Fisher was invited to come and vi- have dinner at the home, and they were almost immediately uh, attracted to one another, although uh, their courtship lasted eight years, uh, uh, because John didn't feel that his position and income uh, in, uh, uh, as, as a junior preacher was sufficient to support adequately family, so they had, uh, he was waiting until he got an appointment good enough that he thought uh, that he could really uh, continue into marriage. Now, Mary herself was a very interesting person. Uh, Her family had Methodist credentials that were uh, impeccable. The first Methodist sermon preached in Baltimore was preached in 1771 by a man named John King who stood up on a blacksmith's chopping block down where the downtown athletic club is in Baltimore today and preached to a crowd. Uh, the, uh, the surveyor uh, general of Baltimore County, and Baltimore at that time was the county seat of Baltimore County. It wasn't until 1852 that Towson assumed that role. And uh, the the surveyor general was sitting on horseback listening to the sermon when he was convicted of uh, the necessity of having a personal relationship with Christ. And that was Mary Fisher's uncle, or great uncle. Uh, So in a sense, she was descendant from the very first Methodist converts in Baltimore. Uh, she had been born in Cecil County. Her father was also a medical doctor and had a very successful practice. Uh, but, the, but he also dabbled in real estate uh, and bought and, and developed property uh, very successfully. His brother was a very prominent merchant in the city and they're the Fisher family. And the brother had really uh, accumulated a great deal of wealth and was a bachelor and uh, left 
his income, his money on his death, to his brother and and to his nieces, the children of John Fisher. John Fisher, uh, by this time, had moved here to Pikesville to Altadale. So Mary Fisher lived at Altadale from about the time she was three years old. And uh, they, uh, and this chapel, which was adjacent to the property, would have been the family church. Uh, and indeed, the Fisher family took a great interest in, in, in the congregation uh, as time went by. The, um, John Fisher retired from medical practice and I guess you'd say went into agriculture and, and again, land uh, speculation. And uh, uh, he was very prominent in the affairs of the Methodist Episcopal Church. He was the first, he was the first person elected to the, to the general conference of, as a layperson. The, the church was entirely governed by the clergy, and it was only uh, mid-century uh, in the 1800s that lay people were admitted into the highest governing body of the church, the General Conference. John Fisher was the president of what was called the Lay Electoral College, which elected the delegates who, who represented the laity in the General Conference. And uh, so he was committed to the church and its life from the very start. And it was the rise of capable, prosperous people like him <laughs> that led to the pressure to admit lay, lay people into the government of the church. The, um, these two lovers, uh, there's a story about John and Mary, um, and if it isn't true, it's one of those things that should be, and uh, uh, that when, when John wanted to marry, Mary Cecilia Fisher. He uh, he went to her father and, and asked his permission. Who said, <coughs> reputedly, uh, "Sir, you are but a young preacher and a junior preacher at that." I mean, no wonder he waited eight years then to, to but uh, uh, and you know. I know, I know because I'm one of the people who set your salary. What you're going, what, what these people get paid. Mary, on the other hand, is a wealthy woman in her own right, and likely, referring to his own age, to become even more wealthy. Could it be, sir, that you're marrying her for her money? And. Goucher is reputed to have replied, Sir, I love her for herself, but I believe we can do a great deal of good with her money. <laughs> and this so charmed uh, John Fisher that he gave his consent. Uh, he died uh, as Christmas was approaching, and uh, they, they were... Uh, they were married on December the 24th, 1877, uh, 
really uh, in the midst of, of the funeral uh, solemnities for John Fisher because Mary felt <coughs> with the diffidence that she showed throughout her life um, that she needed a man present in the household. So uh, she married John uh, immediately after her father's death. And um, it's brought John to a final decision. And also, I'm sure that at that time she was able to convince him that they would be well able to support themselves. While Goucher was a member, was serving in the, at, at Lovely Lane, what's now Lovely Lane Church, uh, he never took a salary as pastor because of their independent wealth. That's um, not actually something I recommend because the congregation gets used to that. And, uh, and, and, and the next person may not be able to so live. Um, but, uh, uh, but it was that kind of an independence that they were able to achieve because of their wealth. And of course, after Dr. Goucher's father's death, he also uh, inherited wealth. Um, There's a little irony about that that I'll, I will mention. But the two of them then embarked on a career of doing good with their money. Uh, and it, it, was, it was really uh, incredible what they were able to accomplish. The two of them um, together uh, became very committed in the missionary work of the church. Mar now Mary's faith was very deep and uh, she kept a private journal, for instance, in which she had her favorite hymns. Her most favorite hymn was A Mighty Fortress is Our God and its great testimony of faith uh, from the pen of Martin Luther. Uh, but her second one was A Charge to Keep I Have, Charles Wesley's great hymn, which says, among other things, to serve the present age my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. And uh, she became the monitor for much of what the two of them did together. Um, in India, they founded a series of schools um, after they found out about the Indian mission work. And they founded a series of schools which they funded entirely. And Dr. Goucher reviewed the report card, so to speak, of every student in the school and approved those who would go on for further education. And they were great patrons of the Lucknow Biblical Institute, which was a school for men in India, and of Isabella Thoburn College, which was a college for women in Lucknow, India. And the better students in this elementary and uh, preparatory program got to go to the colleges. But... Uh, these schools were so important that one of the other missionaries, when he arrived 
in, in India, said he kept hearing people talk about Goucher, 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 and he assumed that the word Goucher must be the Hindu word, Hindi word for school, but actually it was the name of the people who made the schools possible. They also were patrons of schools in China, a number of which are still operating in China. They were closed during the Cultural Revolution and then reopened uh, recently. Uh, They together founded uh, the, the University of Tokyo and they were the first people granted permission who were not Japanese to open any kind of school in the Empire of Japan. And that school is now known as the Aoyama Gakuin in Tokyo and is still in operation. But I think the most characteristic story of the way they operated uh, is the beginning of work in Korea. We just had a meeting at our church, uh, which we have once a year, called our Charge Conference, when the bishop's representative comes to visit and inspect the church, and was telling us that the bishop and all the bishop's assistants just came back from a trip to Korea. And everywhere they went, people were telling them, oh, we must thank you, Baltimore Conference, You sent us John Goucher. You produced John Goucher. Everywhere they went, people were talking about Goucher in Korea. And the Korean church is now one of the fastest growing churches in all of Asia. Uh, um, And in the administration of President Chester A. Arthur, uh, not a memorable president, but... uh, um, the Koreans sent a delegation to the United States to open diplomatic relations. And and the chair of that was the nephew of the queen of of, uh, Korea. And they were brought by U.S. military ships to the West Coast and had to travel to meet Arthur, the president, in New York. That's where they actually presented their credentials. And it just happened that Dr. Goucher got on the same train that they were on. And he saw this delegation of foreign visitors and struck up a conversation with the the queen's nephew. And by the time they got to the East Coast, he had established that the needs of Korea were for schools, for care, for parentless children, for a whole series of things that they needed that he felt the church could provide. And, uh, but he couldn't proceed until he had brought this to Mary Goucher's attention and to determine if she approved. And uh, so... The delegation had to travel from New York to Washington then, and he had them stop in Baltimore and entertain them in Baltimore and introduced Mary Goucher to the head of the delegation, and then she gave her approval. They then 
sent the money to the Board of Missions to open work in Korea. And if the board would recruit the proper person to, to be in charge, it was a man named Oppenzeller, uh, then uh, they would fund this for, for a period of three years. They would underwrite the entire cost of the mission. And by which time they anticipated the Board of Missions would, would be able to take over its support. And that was the beginning of Methodist missionary work in Korea. The Koreans have all of this in what they, we call our discipline in the Methodist church, with their history of their church. So that most people think that he was a bishop or something of that sort. But what he was was a person who knew that they could commit their resources to the work of Christ. But they didn't confine their work to work overseas. They were both deeply committed to the education of uh, the freed uh, and other African Americans uh, following the Civil War. And they gave the money for the first buildings of what was called the Centenary Biblical Institute, which is now Morgan University. Uh, their first property was in West Baltimore. Goucher eventually became the president of the Board of Trustees of that college, which was a Methodist college. And he, in 1917, led in the acquisition of the current campus. We have letters in the museum, which it's a wonder they haven't spontaneously combusted. They are, they are so derogatory to him because he was helping black people to gain education. Uh, some of them even say, aren't there enough farm jobs? Why do they need to learn anything better? Uh, and uh, they're just, just really attacking Goucher. Uh, the, um, but he courageously led them in the acquisition of that campus. It was in the 1930s that the state of Maryland took over that school from the Methodist Church. The church could no longer support it adequately, uh, if it ever really did. And... Um, uh, the Supreme Court was making rumblings about separate but equal education, and the state of Maryland didn't have any higher education for African Americans. So they were anxious to acquire a school that they could then show the court and say, look, we have a school for African Americans. But the school has become a great school um, at Morgan University. Um, they also founded the Princess Anne Academy on the Eastern Shore, because there was no higher education for African Americans anywhere on the Eastern Shore in Delaware or Maryland, and that's now the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. So the Gouchers were interested in education. And in 1883, um, Goucher had become, he was appointed to what was then called First Methodist Episcopal Church in the city of Baltimore. And that was a church that wanted to relocate to a, a new place. And bridges had just been built across the Jones Falls and the railroad, which opened up the whole north-central part of the city in what's now called Charles Village area. And uh, they also were getting ready to celebrate the anniversary of the founding of the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. 
at a meeting called the Christmas Conference, 1784, uh, in Baltimore at Lovely Lane Meeting House. So Goucher conceived the idea of building a monumental church up north of the railroad cut um, <clears throat> and acquired property. And uh, to show you how he operated, there was a small group who didn't want to move. There always is whenever churches want to do something creative. You know. And they thought, we're gonna, we will fix him and his friends. They can build a new church if they want to, as long as they don't acquire title to land outside Baltimore City. <coughs> the city line was then at North Avenue. And as long as they don't contract any debt. Well, it's hard to build a new church and not contract any debt, but they thought they had stopped him. <coughs> Instead of buying the property, which was outside the city limits, although in the course of building the church, the city annexed the area, uh, what Goucher did was he took a ground rent on the land. Thereby, he did not take title to the land. He was paying rent to somebody else. You know, it's an old Baltimore custom to have brown, ground rents. So he, uh, he, he got around them that way. And then on the day the church was finished and opened for worship, they began services at 6 o'clock in the morning and continued until 11 o'clock in the evening until they had subscribed the entire debt for the building. And so it opened free of debt on its first day of worship. So he got around that kind of restriction. And he did that kind of thing all the time. When they were building the church, um, they found out that the land wouldn't support the tower, which was so huge. And um, the, uh, they argued for almost a month about the propriety of engaging a civil engineer to study the land. And after they finally came to a decision that they would, Dr. Goucher reached in his briefcase and took out the report and handed it to them. Uh, uh, they had already done it. He had already done it. And uh, probably would have paid for it himself if, if the building committee hadn't folded it into their process. But at the same time, he and Mrs. Goucher conceived the idea of creating a school for women. The Baltimore Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church was sending lots of money to Dickinson College, but it was only for men. And so they conceived the idea that we're spending thousands of dollars on our sons, but nothing on our daughters. Now, it just happened that they had three daughters. Um, they had had five children, but three lived, and uh, they were all daughters. And, um, and another died. Um, uh, but they, they um, founded the, the, what was called the Women's College of Baltimore. Uh, it might have been the Women's College of Baltimore City because everything Goucher did had Baltimore City stuck after it, usually. Uh, even the camp meeting, Emory Grove, um, out uh, in Glendon, was the Emory Grove Evangelistic Association of Baltimore City. Uh, but the... the um, uh, Goucher was, as I will say in, in closing, was deeply committed to work in the city. Uh, 
They founded the Women's College of Baltimore and eventually uh, in 1891, I think, uh, Goucher became the president of the college. He continued in that role until his retirement, which was in 1910. And, uh, uh, and he, uh, at that time, the, the college was renamed Goucher College in honor of both Dr. Goucher and in memory of Mrs. Goucher, who had died in 1902. It's my theory that Goucher never undertook another new costly um, philanthropy after Mrs. Goucher died. Because everything they did, he wanted her approval of. Because he always felt that he was spending her money, as he had told her father, and, um, and doing good with it. Um, but he had, he had had a distinguished career. He was also, he was a delegate in, in uh, 1910 to the World, the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is the beginning of the modern ecumenical movement uh, to bring churches together for a common mission for Christ. He was very active in the World Christian Student Movement where he influenced a young layman by the name of John R. Mott, who became the first or the honorary president of the World Council of Churches when it was founded. By that time, Mott was in his mid-90s, so he wasn't the active president. Um, But he had an influence on a tremendous number of of young people that, uh, but he himself while he was always deferred to and given great honor in the church, he didn't become a bishop, he didn't, he didn't get any of the great ecclesiastical offices. Um, to, toward the end of his life, he said, um, I have had six definite and distinct calls. First, to be a Christian. Second, almost immediately, to be a minister. Then third, as clear and definite, to minister to young people. Fourth, for missionary work. Fifth, for Christian education in all lands. Sixth, a clear call to work for the unification of Methodism. Methodism was divided into many different groups, north, south, etc. And, and he worked tirelessly to bring them together. He was also determined not to permit the southern branch of the church to remove all of the African-American members from them, from the membership of the church, which was their intention. They had created a lily-white church in the south and had set up a parallel black church called today called the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, CME. You'll see it around on buildings. It still exists. Um, and Goucher would not permit that and created the mechanism for retaining African-American membership in the church. 
even though um, it, it was a compromised membership. It wasn't until 1965 that the church really fully integrated its life. Um, so what I would say is that here were two people who understood you know, what Paul was talking about when he said, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. They were willing to give what they had. Uh, when Dr. Goucher died, much of the wealth that he still retained was placed into trust funds for the benefit of his children. They had a lifetime interest to income from those funds, but they did not inherit the principle of the funds. The funds went to various missions and projects that he and Mary Cecilia had approved of. And uh, I, I, I laughed about this because when I've talked with grandchildren, they said, well, nobody in the family got well." <laughs> got this wealth, you know. It wasn't passed on to the grandchildren. It was only for the benefit of the children uh, because Goucher felt that uh, it needed to keep on doing work. He had made a promise that he would do whatever God wanted him to do if God would assure him of the forgiveness of his sins. And he and Mary Cecilia together fulfilled uh, that vow, which was a common vow in their lives. They gave themselves uh, and their wealth as a sacrifice to God. And I suppose we should all be exhorted as the parable ended, go and do likewise. Um, Let us pray. Loving God, we pray that you will be with us as we go from this place that you will enable us to look at ourselves and to see what it is you've given us, what particular talent, what particular ability, what particular resource that we can consecrate to you and to your service. We are so grateful that you do assure us in Jesus Christ that you have taken away our sin and saved us, even us, in your loving care. Grant that we may show forth that gratitude by giving up ourselves to your service in all that we do, in all that we say, and to all whom we meet. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.